QC Pod is a production of the Queen's Podcast Lab. This is QC Pod. I'm Jason Tuga. QC Pod features the people, projects, movements, and ideas that make up the Queen's College community. To learn more, visit us at queenspodcastlab.org slash qcpod. That feeling that being in the front with all these other women, just like mere feet from Slater Kinney. And if you've heard Corin Tucker's vocals, she has like a really distinctive kind of wail. And to be that close, and they use like detuned guitars, so it's just a really powerful sound. And I just was like, oh my gosh, like this is real and this is happening to me. I remember seeing Babes in Toyland live in New York and just being completely blown away by the power and the honesty and it was incredibly inspiring um and sobering too to realize like how did i not see this but uh just the energy the energy in the room was absolutely electric and the sound was completely different yeah it was definitely a watershed moment for me as a as a fan I'm Jason Tuga, and I am really pleased to say that today, Eleanor Whitney and Amy Hersog join me in the QC pod. Eleanor is the author of Riot Woman, Using Feminist Values to Destroy the Patriarchy, out just this fall. She's also an MFA student in creative writing and literary translation here at Queens College. Amy Herzog is Professor of Media Studies as well as Department Chair over there. Amy also teaches a course in musical subcultures. So we thought it would be great to get Amy and Eleanor together to have a conversation about Riot Girl culture. Where did it come from? How did it thrive? What did it mean for young women in the 90s and beyond? What are some of its prehistories, its legacies, its complications? We even get into a little disco conversation. It's wide-ranging. I hope you enjoy it. Eleanor, let's start with you. You've published Riot Woman, which is a book that's part memoir, part cultural criticism, and kind of in the way that zines were always both those things. It's very personal. It's very political. Those things are intimately tied for you, obviously. And you're telling your story of discovering Riot Girl but also telling it from your perspective now and thinking back and reflecting on and critiquing that movement. And I just think there's got to be a story behind this book, and I'd love to hear it.
I'm also really interested in the way you kind of come at the right here, right now-ness of Riot Girl um, after the fact um, as well, that uh, um, both in terms of discovering Riot Girl um, after it's kind of peaked and is waning, um, and also coming to it from rural Maine, as opposed to one of the urban centers that generally kind of frame all our discussions of, of Riot Girl, as well as, as, well as kind, of kind of writing about, about it, it then, then um, um, in terms, in terms of, thinking of thinking about the legacy, about the legacy now. now. So there's, so there's, all, there's all these really, really interesting, interesting kind of, kind of temporal, temporal registers, registers happening, happening here. here. Yeah, it was really fun yeah, to it was really read you feeling like you had missed out and I really related to that as being just like a little too, I don't want to say a little too old for Riot Girl, but kind of a little too old for Riot Girl. Arriving to it as a slightly older person. Arriving to it as a slightly older person. Realizing how much I had missed out Realizing how much I had missed out Realizing how much internalized misogyny i had myself misogyny? in terms of my relationship to in terms of my relationship music scenes to, uh music scenes not uh, having felt empowered uh, not having in the felt same way so one of the things uh, i loved the same way. about so your book one was of the how I about your frankly book was you talked about frankly facing that about internalized misogyny and those kind of painful discoveries that don't register necessarily as empowering but are in fact kind of a painful reckoning you do an amazing job describing the pull of the right here, right now quality of Riot Girl. Just that immediacy uh, that made it seem like change was possible in the moment. And I'm sure Amy's got thoughts about this, too. So what I would love to do is just turn it over to the two of you to have some conversation about what that meant to you at the time when it was happening.
It's interesting. I it's actually, interesting. Can't, I think actually of can't think anyone of I know anyone who I know was who involved was in the scene. Involved in the scene. Really, even in really, the height of it, in the height of it, who identifies themselves as a riot girl. There's always this sense that it was happening somewhere else. Somewhere else. There were so many people that were left out in different ways, and that was part of the part of the reckoning, but also part of I think what made its legacy so rich was people thinking about that discomfort of who was left out. It's such a different, such a different audience, audience too. Um, the way that the mixtape or the zine is pitched in this very intimate way um, that I'm actually curious how young younger generations who are only used to um, the kind of mass audience of social media, um, which has its niches, but it, it's not the same as the intimacy of picking up a handmade and stapled uh, zine that um, is only available on paper um, that's been mailed to you by someone from across the country. Yeah. I'm really thinking about um, think projects about like Tracy and the Plastics also, theory, which um, I think um, which in many ways was, was I know that um, uh, when Greenwood kind of the spectacle also speaks of, fashion, of kind of not feeling um, a part of Riot Girl. Through, 
reorganizing the social space of the club um, by sending the girls to the front uh, and by analyzing where people were in the room um, and making that mm. part of the project. That's really an incredibly radical act to try to shift shift the geography mm. of the space that you're in. Um, and the pushback they got for that, I think, speaks to how mm. effective that was. But the zine writing especially um, is, is where so much of that work was happening in terms of empowering mm -hmm. empowering individuals to distribute um, and analyze and share their perspectives in this really material, really direct, um, and as Jason said, very immediate way. Eleanor, you made me super curious about why it was music that was at the center of Riot Girl. I mean, it was fashion, it was theory, it was criticism, it was theater, it was performance art, it was all kinds of things. But the music really seemed to be the center. And with that in mind, I would love to know whether there was a show or a musical experience of some kind that each of you had that just really rocked you and changed things for you. I have a bunch. Um, but I remember seeing Babes in Toyland live in New York. and just being completely blown away by the power and the honesty and again the shift the shift in space um where i had been going to punk shows in new york for many years and just kind of accepted the kind of toxic masculinity that often dominated those spaces without even thinking about it and to see that flipped um was yeah just like this um curtain had been lifted from my eyes that it didn't have to be this this way um it was incredibly inspiring um and sobering too to realize like how did i not see this um but uh just the energy the energy in the room was absolutely electric and uh the sound was completely different uh yeah it was definitely a watershed moment for me as a as a fan that's amazing. I imagine that show is incredible. <laughs> uh, for me, I mean, I've always played music. I think, you know, my parents thought piano lessons would be good for me. And then I think they really unleashed something because I tried so many different instruments, drum, it's many which are unpleasant. I think if you're if you're a parent like oh great my fourth grader is playing <laughs> drums this is really fantastic you know uh, clarinet I was a clarinetist for a long time um, but I'd, I'd always been in sort of the classical or jazz realm so to find punk and rock uh, really just blew it open for me uh, because I realized like you didn't have to constantly drill on theory and skills you could just play and express yourself. And that was really freeing. Uh, I will say, I think that the sort of feminist uh, proto folk, I don't really know what to call it, of the 1990s was a nice groundwork for me. So uh, Indigo Girls, Ani DeFranco, you know, I had a friend who had introduced me to all that and we'd gone to a lot of Ani shows. And I really, so I really felt like, okay, it wasn't that I didn't think women could play music. Like that was very clear. I'd like and more mainstream bands like that. But I think 
what really made it click for me was that DIY element of it, that it you didn't have to have the backing of major record companies to express yourself, to make records, to go on tour. Um, and while they were a pretty big band at the time, I think my watershed moment was seeing Slater Kinney uh, in 1999 at the, the cl a club called the Middle East in Boston. I just turned 18, so I was allowed to go. And I remember driving to Filene's to buy the tickets and they had to like print them out. <laughs> you know, it's like Ticketmaster or whatever. And me and my friend, you know, <laughs> drove down to Boston and it was about two hours away from where I grew up. But just, yeah, that feeling that being in the front with all these other women, just like mere feet from Slater Kinney. And if you've heard Corinne Tucker's vocals, she has like a really distinctive kind of wail. And to be that close and they use like detuned guitars. So it's just a really powerful sound. And I just was like, oh my gosh, like this is real and this is happening to me. And as I, and I'm about, you know, I'm about to leave home. I'm like two years away from leaving home and, and this could be my world, you know? So it really opened me up in that way. Um, and the gossip uh, opened and I, Beth Ditto also has amazing, powerful vocals and is just an incredible performer. So I think to see, and the gossip are much closer in age to me, I think, than like the members of Slater Kitty. So it's like, okay, these are, young people doing this and like going on a national tour and putting yourself out there as possible. So I think that was really transformative. Uh, though I, I didn't aspire to necessarily be like in a national touring band because that's a lot of work. <laughs> I think at the smaller Riot Girls shows, one of the things I noticed was that, and I, I do love punk of that era and grunge of that era and i'm not afraid of the messy distortion but the the vibe in the room would always be one of kind of connoisseurship and the math rock and like really analyzing kind of the precision of what kind of rhythmic things were happening and the the vibe at the riot girl shows there was first of all they're just way more interactive there was room for so much more kind of banter and talk with the audience, bringing the audience up. There's, there's a lot more talking um, and room for messiness with the sound, um, room for poppiness with the sound when that um, wanted to wanted to come in. Um, if, if you didn't know what to expect and that was really exciting in the way that you knew what to expect i think a lot of times from uh a more traditional punk show you both describe sound and the distinctiveness of sound at riot girl shows as opposed to say other hardcore shows or male-dominated shows and i'm just really curious to hear what did it sound like yeah i love that i was just thinking about how soon after that Sleater Kenny show I went to in Boston. Uh, my friends in Boston who I met through making zines started a kind of zine distro specifically at shows because they wanted people to interact more at shows and they wanted there to be more exchange. Uh, it was called the Boston Free Dance Movement. I mean, we're talking about Boston. It's a pretty buttoned up city. 
uh, I'm from New England. It's not my favorite place. My parents kind of rag on it. They still, you hate Boston. I'm like, yeah, it's true. Uh, but what was amazing there is that they were motivated, I think, through kind of riot girl and do-it-yourself ideas to create something where these shows could even be more interactive. And they specifically picked bands uh, that were kind of riot girl or indie pop. And I think what people kind of don't, I know now like the indie pop or twee sound is still kind of popular, but at the time it wasn't so separate from Riot Girl, And it was still, I felt pretty political. Uh, after my sort of first initial, very messy art rock band, I played in an indie pop band uh, and actually went on a little tour and it was, it was great. I didn't see there was a separation from being punk and being pop. And I think that's very much in the spirit of record labels like K records also who are a big proponent of riot girl but i just thought that was really cool that my friends were able to then do that and and that there was a place within that music scene to keep bringing in different forms of art and continuing the conversation as well so thanks for speaking to that amy and bringing up that memory for me i'm thinking about um projects like tracy and the plastics also which um mm -hmm. i think in many ways was i know that uh when greenwood also speaks of kind of not feeling a part of Riot Girl, feeling more of a connection to the queer core scene, but creating really performance art that was about interaction uh, with the audience and building kind of multiple layers of that through uh, her video work. Yeah, definitely. And I think not to sound like a historian of this at all, but I think when you think about how Riot Girl, one of the places it generated was in Olympia, Washington, in a really specific art scene. So people had been doing performance art and running DIY galleries, and those were the spaces that nurtured Riot Girl, and there were these independent record labels. So I think... And I remember like Becca Albee, who is in Excuse 17, um, she's also a professor in the CUNY system, I believe, uh, and an artist like she was selling artwork through this little like mail order catalog from Olympia, Washington. And I think even Excuse 17 is like, ah, I don't know for a Riot girl band. And yet they're like seen as one of the sort of pillars of Riot girl bands. So. Yeah, but I, it's just interesting. I think we have to remember there was so many different forms of art and expression part of it. It wasn't just like fashion and a few bands, which is, I think, kind of how it can get remembered. Eleanor, I believe you have the inside information about the origin of the name Bikini Kill. I mean, this... <laughs> I feel like I'm just quoting Sarah Marcus now, but oh, I've read this in a few different places. Like the, so Bikini Kill is one of the, you know, formative bands of Riot Girl, and they hosted Riot Girl meetings in DC, but they started in Olympia, Washington, where again, there was this scene of like artists and record producers and bands already happening. And a really important part of that was a woman named Lois Maffio, who writes more like folk and folk rock music, but she, I believe, had done a performance piece uh, referencing something like Bikini Kill, and that's how Bikini Kill kind of got inspired to get their name, was from a performance piece, I believe, by Lois Mafio. So I think what's just interesting in that is just sort of different generations or overlapping generations of women artists inspiring each other and not just this linear legacy of, say, punk, where it's like, oh, well, this band that inspired this band, you know, that, but that it's very interdisciplinary as well. 
You know, one aspect of your argument that I really admired was the way that you resisted single origins for just about anything, but for the movement of Riot Girl as a whole. Of course, there was Olympia Washington, and that was real, but there was also a lot of other stuff going on. I mean, you mentioned the slits, like, you know, there's history there, obviously. Um, and the same goes for the idea of the movement ending somehow, like you felt you came upon it when people were announcing its ending in the media, and uh, there are no single endings here either, right? Um, and I guess I'm just curious to hear your thoughts about why Riot Girl has been proclaimed dead so many times. Yeah, I mean, I think how many times has like feminism <laughs> been declared dead in the media, right? Like, I think anything that kind of gets taken up by the media, especially that's done by young women or any marginalized group, it's really quick to be dismissed as this passing phenomenon because, you know, it's disrupting the status quo. So I think that was the case with Riot Girl. But I think once the media did start getting really interested, some of the kind of original, I don't even want to call them founders, but uh, or originators of Riot Girl were kind of like, no, that's over, you know, and this is in the early 90s, you know, that's past. Because I think, too, there was a wanting to dissociate from that sort of stereotyped image of it. So I guess I'm like, and I think that was why I was so mad when I discovered that people were, when I was, sorry, ugh, I got a little tripped up there. I think when I discovered Riot Girl, why I was so mad that people were declaring it dead, I was like, no, like young women's activism isn't dead. Some of us are just figuring this stuff out. So it's yeah. still relevant. And I mean, I would say that's probably the same for young people today. Like it's a way to kind of keep you powerless and in despair. Like, hey, these movements aren't dead. These issues are certainly still relevant, whether you're talking about um, feminism or climate activism or a movement like Black Lives Matter, you know, those issues, they may go by different names, but they're still really, really important, whether or not something's trending in the media or on Twitter now. <laughs> Rant over. <laughs> but Amy, I'm curious, uh, because you also felt like you kind of missed out, quote unquote, on Riot Girl. Mm -hmm. Like, what was your perception of it? Where I, I do remember it was like deeply uncool to be into it by the, the late 90s, but I was deeply uncool as a teenager, so I guess that didn't bother me so much. I'm gonna think about that, but you just sparked a thought for me about the way kind of music coverage declares different movements dead. And um, I'm thinking about disco, um, which had like a very definitive like death on, uh, Comiskey Field with the disco demolition and was declared dead even though if you listen to like the beat structure of dance music post-1979 disco still alive and well but it was a separation of the activism and the community specifically the queer community around disco <clears throat> that gets left out of the narrative when you declare the death there so I'm I'm interested in how the kind of anxiety around music and activism coming together as a movement seems so threatening and the the speed with which the the media wishes to write them off as kind of passing fancies yeah absolutely absolutely and i love that um 
correspondent like to disco and yet then it's like producers who worked with disco went on and you know like produced some of the biggest hits of the 80s you know <laughs> so and and now are venerated as just like total heroes in in music and pop culture and just the separation from i don't want to turn this into disco but um the separation from social context that like the aids crisis mm -hmm. um and uh what else is happening that causes movements to shift um is interesting to interesting to think about i don't know if this is going to bring these threads together or maybe just it's going off somewhere that isn't going to make sense but i'm i want to know what you all think in your book eleanor there's a great section where you talk about la tigra's song hot topic and it's it, it's a kind of you know I don't know, testimonial to feminist history, you know, shout outs to all these icons, that kind of thing. Um, but that song's kind of a disco song, or maybe it's like, it actually is just a straight up disco song. Okay, cool. It's a disco song. And I wonder if it brings together threads of Riot Girl and disco, some relationship that was always there. I don't know. Was it? Well, I... I actually, <laughs> I was thinking about 20 year nostalgia cycle. So 2099, 2000, 2001, when suddenly disco post-punk like hit it big. So we have bands like La Tigra who are using electronics, dance beats, um, that, and for people who are like, who, what? Kathleen Hanna, who was the singer in one of the singers in Bikini Kill and kind of one of its uh, driving forces went on to make this uh, more like, electronic dance project called La Tigre, which I think found kind of more mainstream acclaim in the early 2000s. But I think you also had bands like, frankly, you know, The Strokes or or people who were referencing these kind of like post-punk beats, which were totally disco. Sorry, this is the... <laughs> I, sorry, I love this music so you kind of tapped into a nerdy thing so anyway i'm just thinking about 20 year nostalgia cycles so by that time though was the sound of disco completely divorced from you know its political roots or could we say okay this was also the start of the bush era you know there's sort of a reason people were picking up this sound again and i know for me personally listening to bands from the late 70s and early 80s uh, in 2000, 2001, like early Bush era, really, they felt like they hadn't yeah, aged no, a day. So bands that um, actually were very um, influential to Riot Girl, like the Slits, Jamie like Samson Gang of Four, these are, are English kind of bands that were very, very uh, political as well. So sorry, Amy, you were going to say something too. Dance spaces and fighting, you know, um, being very involved in AIDS activism and um, politicized, you know, thinking about Giuliani and Bush, like it's, it's, it, that to me is where disco wanted to go. Um, I see a direct connection there actually. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I'm also thinking just in 2000, there was also bands like Chick 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 and Outhud in New York. And these were the shows I would go to when I first moved to New York. And they were really p explicitly political, even though they were really, really fun 
dance bands. And we're also, yeah, creating that queer dance space, I think, in a very new and I think kind of scrappier way than maybe some of the really produced sounds of disco did at the end. It was Eleanor who introduced me to one of my favorite podcasts, which is, uh, well, a series of a podcast hosted by Hanif Abdurraqib. The podcast is produced by KCRW. It's called Lost Notes, and his season's called 1980, and every episode is about a different artist who was making some kind of musical waves in the year 1980, or just music from 1980. Abdurraqib really knows how to tell a good story, and in the Grace Jones episode, he begins with a really evocative retelling of that Comiskey Park episode where they burned all the disco records and he does an amazing job of showing the underlying racism and homophobia and transphobia that that whole situation was about so uh, I just want to shout out to Hanif Abdurraqib and recommend that episode you know and that also kind of reminds me that I think we also think about punk as you know oh it was this very like straight white thing and then you know riot girl was disrupting that which is really true but i think in lost notes points to this too is there were punk scenes like the la punk scene in the late 70s early 80s were super performance art driven super queer you know definitely not white and i think there was this reaction to it and then you saw hardcore kind of coming out that was like very macho uh not totally white but you know sort of, I would call it a white boy attitude coming out of that because it was kind of this reaction to this fear, I think, of this much more, I guess, multidimensional universe or way of being. So I think it's just interesting to think about, you know, how there's like these push-pull in music subcultural legacies, uh, which I hope Briar Woman is kind of exploring from a more personal standpoint as well. This has been such a great and fun conversation, totally illuminating. So thank you, Eleanor, and thank you for writing the book. Thank you, Amy, for being here. Right. Back at you, Jason. Thanks for making this forum. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. This is so fun and really appreciate all the work you're doing especially to explore these different formats of media and conversation. So thank you. And now I would like to just give the two of you an opportunity to close by offering whatever it is you hope the Queens College community will take away from hearing about your experience of Riot Girl and really especially our students. I have an idea maybe just also knowing what my students responded to um, and were really inspired by, but thinking about like, what, what are lessons for young people now that we might take from the legacy of Riot Girl in terms of creating your own musical spaces, but also thinking about how to channel your creative energy and your activism without being crushed. That's definitely a great question. And I think this is one of the central questions I was trying to explore in this book and try to answer for myself, too, because I think there are various points in the book that were really painful to write about, which was reckoning with the ways that I did feel crushed or that, 
my friends and I did feel crushed. So I think, you know, when I moved to Portland, Oregon in the early 2000s, like full of vim and vigor, like I'm finally moving to the feminist utopia, which um, and started this or helped start this feminist art collective that just completely imploded and everyone was really mean to each other. You know, that felt really crushing. The Bush years felt really crushing, mobilizing, you know, so the biggest being part of the biggest, you know, same day demonstrations until the Women's March came along um, against the war in Iraq and having it happen anyway. Those felt really crushing. So I think. I would say what I've been learning is taking a long game and knowing that it's not your singular action that's going to change the world or change your life or fix your community, but it all adds up and it all will connect you to people and ideas that will continue to grow in, inside you. So I think it's really important for not just young people, but everyone to try things out and to have grand hopes and expectations because you never know but then to also say like it's not just about doing one thing in this one move moment but like how it will keep compounding throughout your life so for me the writing of rebecca solnit specifically her book hope in the dark which is about how actually despair is a privilege and hope is what can continue to drive us has been so important to me in reckoning with my past and present activism. So if I would distill that for a message, I'd say just try it. And uh, it may not be what you expect, but keep going. And and that it's totally okay to step away and to say something didn't work and to pivot. Like you do not need to say the same forever. I think I definitely in the later Bush years really stepped back from community activism because I was just completely burnt out. But I was able to concentrate more on teaching and more on writing. And in a way that brought me back to it. So when 2016 happened, I actually felt like I had a lot of skills I could contribute to my community when it came to organizing. So it's really about thinking like, what skills do I have that I can impact like my community now? So for example, I'm a marketer by trade. So how can I help community newsletters? You know, how can I help someone write their email newsletters or make a social media plan or something like that, where to me, that's no big deal, but that's skills not everyone has. So that's a way I could apply my skills or, okay, I know how to make a podcast. Like, could I help a community organization in my neighborhood make a podcast so they can get the word out about what they're doing and, and share? You know, there's all these things I think sometimes we don't always recognize of skills we have and how they can be useful because we're reaching for something outside of ourselves. And I think as a young person, I really venerated older activist movements and didn't kind of look to see what was like right in front of me that could have I could have lent my skills and time and energy to that might have felt a little more gratifying. Huh, yeah. You know, speaking of long game, you've come into this MFA program already having published this book, published a couple of other books. And you've been talking a lot about how you evolved in relation to Riot Girl after Riot Girl, um, and that we're always making ourselves, you know, as people, as activists, as writers, whatever, whatever category it is, we're being made and remade. Was that on your mind when you decided to pursue an MFA in creative writing here at Queens? I think it's about 
always being curious to keep learning and not being static with your skills. Uh, my first book was a how-to book. I'm a really good how-to writer. It helped me move into marketing, which is how I am paying to go to Queens College. <laughs> and I feel so grateful for that. Um, but I realized that's not the kind of book I want to keep writing, that my heart is with literary nonfiction. And I feel like Riot Woman is a step in that direction. And I want to be around peers and keep learning. And I think whatever that is for people, if you can find that, that's so gratifying. Because I think we all, we're all we all told now you're not going to have the same career forever. And I think you're not going to stay the same as a creative person forever either but then you might cycle back and pick up creative things you left you know many years before i'm starting to play music again for the first time in a long time and i'm realizing like yeah these three chords they're fine like this doesn't need to be my complicated art artist statement you know <laughs> i have writing for that so i think yeah it's just part about continuing to push yourself as an artist and as a person or else it's boring. <laughs> You've been listening to QC Pod, the podcast about all things Queens College. We're on Twitter at QC Pod and on the web at queenspodcastlab.org slash QC Pod. Our theme music is Lake Monsters by John Flansburg of They Might Be Giants. I'm Jason Tuga. Thanks for listening.